You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray now that we might see Jesus, the suffering servant, the one who has conquered death, and is high and lifted up, that we might be counted among the righteous. Might you now renew us with hope, uh, perhaps giving hope to some for the very first time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's good to read that. Uh, We've had, uh, we had a last minute medical thing, not medical thing, a sickness, just like so many others. There are a lot of people sick right now, a lot of people that have been hospitalized this week, some that are still in the hospital. Uh, So as Clint said at the beginning of the service, whether you've had a great week, um, despite the busyness, busyness, you've just had a great start to this Christmas season, family and fun and parties and music, or whether you have had a really, really tough week, a tough month, uh, as I know many of you have have had some of you here, many of you who are likely joining us from home on Zoom, uh, in and out of the hospital a week or two or a year of loss and uncertainty, loneliness, or just the difficulty of slogging through the day to day. We are really glad that you are here. Uh, I am so glad that you are here. We need each other to encourage one another on to following Christ, to remember the goodness and glory of God. 
Well, uh, one of the most common literary tropes in the Western tradition is that of a mistaken identity. Uh, sometimes it's like a switch of characters. Uh, often there are twins or there are lookalikes, so Parent Trap or The Man in the Iron Mask or Tale of Two Cities or The Prince and the Pauper. Uh, sometimes it's a disguise that's basically like every superhero story. Uh, even if it's like a very terrible and obvious disguise like Superman's glasses. But even there's another variation of this trope of the royal figure who dresses like the commoner, like the royal Eowyn in The Return of the King, who dresses like a soldier that she might fight. The princess Jasmine in Aladdin dresses like a commoner so she can experience what she assumes to be real life. Even Luke Skywalker, hidden away on a desert planet, uh, though you'd think at least changing his last name would be a good idea if you're trying to hide him from his murderous father. Spoiler, spoiler. Uh, but there is a reason that we all love and long for stories like these. There's a reason why stories like these keep getting reused and reused and reused. And that is because of Christmas. Seriously. All of these stories, intentionally or unintentionally, grasp after the greatest story ever told. But unlike Eowyn or Luke Skywalker, the story of Jesus is not just a story. His incarnation, that God, the eternal God of very God, would be born as a vulnerable infant, is a reality in which we place our entire hope. And it gives us hope today. Last week, we threw our anchor way out into the future of Jesus' coming, this week, we're going to throw our anchor into the past. Last week, we considered Isaiah, uh, in Isaiah chapter 51, and Isaiah is writing these later chapters of this book in a time in which the Babylonians have taken Judah, the, the Babylonians have taken the southern tribes of Israel away into captivity, away from God's presence. And so Isaiah is writing to his people in a time in which there is great question, there is great uncertainty, great doubt. Will there ever be a time of hope and renewal again? And yes, yes, we understood from last week. The king will come, but who is he? What will he be like? Well, Isaiah 53 is the answer. But Isaiah 53 is perhaps an answer that the people of Judah would not have expected, perhaps an answer that we would not have expected. It is a story of hidden or mistaken identity. The king will come, but not in attention-seeking glory and fanfare, but in humility and in meekness. So, just as Clint read from Psalm 24 to open this service, who is this king of glory? Let's answer that question from Isaiah 53 by asking three more questions. Who is this king of glory? We're going to ask and answer those questions by just saying, who is he? Why has he come? And what has now changed? Who is he? Why is he come? And now what? What's now changed? So first of all, who is he? Now, first of all, while it might be clear to us and to New Testament writers that this chapter is about Jesus, in fact, uh, all of the chapters in Isaiah about the so-called suffering servant uh, might be very clear to us that this is about Jesus. Is it? Is Isaiah 53 about Jesus? Is this chapter about Jesus? After all, the Jews throughout history and on into today read Isaiah 53 as part of their scriptures. But then, what do they make of this chapter? 
They come to different conclusions that Isaiah 53 is not about Jesus, but is rather about Israel itself. Israel, the people of God, being the suffering servant, as they have suffered and suffered and suffered over so many centuries. There have been countless books and dissertations written about the servant who begins to appear in Isaiah 41. And in fact, we can say that Israel is the servant of God. In Isaiah 41, 8, we read, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. And then by chapter 42, the servant Israel then is shown to be, which might be a problem for why this chapter 53 can't just be Israel. By chapter 42, the servant Israel is shown to be blind. The servant is deaf. The servant is spiritually guilty. The nation of Israel is actually not capable of living out the role to which they have been called. And so we read, so we read then going on into the 40s and the early 50s of chapter or of the book of Isaiah, as we read these alarm bells should be going off in our imaginations as we read. Alarm bells reminding us of earlier chapters like in chapter 7 where we read, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And then Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's not Israel. God of God, everlasting God, maybe the promised conquering king then that we're remembering from earlier chapters, then as we're then reading in later chapters, we come to realize and understand that the conquering king and the suffering servant are actually the same person, a future singular person who would come. And so if that's the case, who is he? What will he be like? Well, chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, the servant, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one whom, from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. There, this is someone who is completely and utterly unexpected. He will not attract attention in the expected ways. We've often thought about, uh, in Christmas's past, how potentially confused the Magi might have been, potentially even the angels might have been, when they have been told to go and find or proclaim the king, but not in Jerusalem the place of religious power, not in Rome, the halls of political power, but in a backwoods tiny town of Bethlehem, and not even to make an announcement to the people of Bethlehem, but an announcement to shepherds, the poorest, the dirtiest, the most repugnant people in town, in society. And not only that, but that they would find him to be born to an unwed teenager, teenager who then was wrapped in like salacious gossip and controversy and social judgment, and then all of that in a barn. 
we must realize that Jesus is born in a place of horrible smells. Like Joseph likely had to watch his step as he is helping to deliver this infant. That's nuts. That's crazy. The high king of heaven and earth being born in all of these circumstances in this very moment. And it was this way from the day of his birth, and that way would continue on for the rest of his life. With no form or majesty that we should look at him, one commentator says, do not think that if you had been an eyewitness of Jesus, you would have admired him. Not even his miracles made the impact that they should have. His own family misjudged him. When he traveled with his disciples, it wasn't like the movies. Jesus didn't have a holy glow about him. The woman at the well had no idea whom she was talking to. Even John the Baptist became uncertain about him. Our Lord was not special in ways that count with us. In fact, he became hideous in his suffering so that people shunned him, quoting Isaiah 53, as one from whom men hide their faces. The high king of heaven and earth. The king who would come would be a king that we did not realize had come at all. And again, before we wag our fingers at the dense apostles or at the unbelieving crowds or at the angry and condemning Jewish and Roman officials, let's be very careful. Because how often do we treat him very similarly even now? It wasn't apparent that Jesus of Nazareth was Emmanuel, God with us. He did not elevate his people's social standing or their financial security or their political stability. In fact, he often did just the opposite. Seeing and understanding Jesus as the king of glory took faith, which then completely destroys our misunderstood notions that if we could have just walked and talked with Jesus, then our faith would be secure. We would never doubt him ever again. If we could just see him and walk with him, finally settled and secure. No, following and trusting Jesus took faith in his first coming, and it takes faith today. To choose to believe, not, not irrationally or not superstitiously, but in faith today, choosing to believe that he is the king of glory. The promised king, the suffering servant, is my trustworthy God and king. Even when I don't see it or experience it. The incarnation, the doctrine that says that The eternal God of the universe has mysteriously taken on human flesh, or as Augustine once wrote, without ceasing to be what he was, he became what he was not. Swim around in that one sentence for the next month or so. Without ceasing to be what he was, he became what he was not. Without ceasing to be God, he became human. The incarnation is far less than, especially in his first coming, like, getting to fly around with Superman and seeing him beat up all the bad guys, and much more like just going to work every day with Clark Kent, Clark Kent, just boring. That's a terrible illustration. But mild he lay his glory by, choosing to remain concealed in some way of his eternal heavenly glory, By becoming what he was not, a frail human being like you and me, he became as one that we are actually not prone to be wowed by. And so we need a clearer vision to see him. We need a clearer and more glorious savior than actually the one that we want. Which now gets us to our second question. If this is who he is, why has he come? 
Now I ask, why has he come? Because from our perspective, Jesus' first coming is past tense, but the tenses are a bit confusing if you're reading from Isaiah's perspective. Isaiah says things like, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He's talking about things in the past. Is Isaiah writing about someone who is future or something or someone that is past? Well, time is difficult to understand in the book of Isaiah. He not only jumps around in his own lifetime, but he jumps around across centuries and millennia. The suffering servant has obviously not come yet in Isaiah's day, but Isaiah writes in such a way that the past, about the past, in such a way that he, he like places his readers, in fact, he places us there at the moment of suffering. Isaiah places himself, his countrymen, he places us there at the cross because we were. The king would come to suffer and to take our griefs and our sorrows with him to the cross. Not just some like amorphous sins of the world that just floats around like this evil black cloud out there that then Jesus takes into himself, but your weakness, your shame. Verse 5, our transgressions and our iniquities translates into your transgressions, your iniquities, your specific and particular sin. It was your specific and particular sin that drove him to suffer that brought separation from God, that as Paul says in Romans 3, that all of us, no matter the time, in Isaiah's day, in Adam's day, in our day, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that on our own, we are actually not God's friends. Daily, we choose self. Daily, we actively choose what is not good. We reject God as the good and wise and loving creator that he is. In our heart of hearts, we hate him. And we wish he did not exist. We did not wish, we wish that his norms for reality did not exist. We think that we might, in our imaginations or in our longings, be able to replace him with ourselves as the final arbiter of what is right and wrong, what I want for myself and society. Because some things that he asks of me are just too hard, or at least are not immediately desirable to me. I don't want that for myself. And so despite being a good and kind shepherd, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, rejecting him as a good and faithful shepherd and wandering, turning everyone to his own way. And so why has Jesus come? Is this the best verse in the whole Bible? Maybe. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The triune God has enacted a rescue plan for the enslaved. He has enacted an adoption plan for orphans. He has enacted a transformation plan for enemies. He, has, he is right to be justly wrathful against sin when we seek to ruin that which God loves, his kingdom of peace and of love and of selflessness. He is right to judge sin. But you guys, the story of Christmas isn't a story merely about Jesus coming to 
placate some angry and wrathful God. Sam Albury was recently reflecting on John 3.16, and what I'm about to share with you may just change your life. Not Sam's words, not mine. Uh, but this has been stuck. Stuck here and here for the last, the last 10 days or so. John 3.16 does not say, for God was so mad at the world that he sent his only son. It doesn't say that, does it? John does not say that. But how often do we as Christians live as if it did? That though God's wrath and judgment is real, we still live our lives in a never-ending life of never measuring up, fearing an angry God who just hates us and tolerates us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. All of us in this room are guilty people. Every single person who has ever lived is a guilty person, save one. But God loves to save guilty people. A guilty person like you, a guilty person like me, a person who lacks faith and is full of fear, a person who is racked by shame and can't outrun your past, you cannot run your even discouraging present, God has come for you. Or to quote another friend of mine, God saved us because he loved us. He doesn't love us because he saved us. There's another two sentences for you to swim around in for the next month or so. God saved us because he loved us. He doesn't love us because he saved us. He loves the unlovely. Not that he first cleans them up so that he might love them. And if that doesn't sound theologically correct to you, I think that might be the reason why you are so constantly discouraged by your lack of growth. By your constant spiritual exhaustion that the free gospel of grace hasn't fully quite taken root. The gospel from Romans 4, verse 5, that God justifies the ungodly. Or from Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, that while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or even in Isaiah 53, verse 11, that by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, that he would make the unrighteous righteous. Christ has come for us. Christ has died for you. Christ was born for you. He lived for you. He died for you. And not just in some sort of a incarnation in a God-made-low kind of way so that he just experienced disappointment and loss like we might. Like the incarnation would be unbelievable enough if Jesus, the high king of heaven and earth, took on flesh that got sick, if he had lived an 80-year-old life full of weakness and hunger and disappointment and sickness, that he would know and walk among us. That's unbelievable enough. But he was born to die. 
He was born to die a horrible and substitutionary death that should have been ours. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Jesus was not powerless, but like Aslan willingly walking to the stone table, power willingly given up that he might become weak, not taken from him, but given away. Eternal life that, we might, that he might experience death, that we might then experience his life, that we might experience his righteousness, his power, his life. And I love what Ray Ortland says about these verses, that the cross is not some religious ideal. The cross is power. The blood of Jesus is flowing out to sinners of all kinds, taking from them their guilt, their shame, their loss, their tears and despair, and giving them whole new life. Jesus is saying to you right now, I don't want you to bear your burden one moment longer. Let my chastisement give you peace. Let my stripes heal you. We are all like stupid sheep, Ortland says, wandering off from him through our own futile self-remedies and self-righteousness exercises. Who can deny it? But look what God has done. God has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. Believe it and entrust your guilt to him. He can't bear it and survive. He must die. But he is still willing to bear it. This was the triune God's rescue plan of love for you from eternity past. It didn't begin at Christmas, but, but boy, does what happened at Bethlehem really then move this rescue plan along in a major new way. And at Christmas, this newborn baby with a tender brow, a forehead so soft and delicate. There are lots of newborn infants in this room. I've held a couple this week uh, in hospitals. Brand new baby infants. Like that delicate infant with the baby smell. That is the high king of heaven. With this tiny, tender forehead that will one day have gruesome one-inch thorns driven into it. And he will take the thorns willingly to take your sin upon his head. And this blood from a tiny, tiny heart, you could put your ear to this infant's chest and hear this tiny heartbeat going. That heart will, that will pump blood out of holes in his hands and holes in his feet and finally emptying into a hole into his side and he will spill his blood willingly to give you his righteousness. He has come to suffer, to die for you. But you may notice that I titled this sermon with the really awkward language of the king who is come. That comes straight from the first line of Joy to the World that we sang earlier. I've mentioned this in Christmas's past, but have you ever thought about why we don't sing Joy to the World, the Lord has come? It's not just weird old English, though it kind of is. His coming is present. He is come. It isn't some past event like we might say, like Michael Phelps has won the gold medal. No, Michael Phelps is the gold medal winner. 
then, now, and ongoingly. But unlike Michael Phelps, whose reign as a gold medalist was put in jeopardy every four years and then eventually ended altogether, the kingdom of Christ, whose reign as king of heaven and earth never ends. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. He rules the world with truth and grace, now and ongoingly, and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Amazing. He is come to suffer and to die, but if that's the case, now what? What are the benefits of living on this side of Christmas and his coming cross and ultimately his empty tomb? Well, lastly, what now has changed? Because enemies can be made friends, because sinners can have peace with God, because you and I can know God and walk with him in joy, then verse 12, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Isaiah looks forward to a day when, like military victors who divide up the spoils of armies that have been defeated, Jesus is going to divide the spoils of victory and power amongst his people who have walked behind his conquest over sin and death. Now, again, we might read a verse like that and come to the conclusion that, well, If that's the case, if he's going to divide the spoils of his victory, then we might expect these spoils to result in more power, in more victory. That sounds good to be a Christian. Sign me up for that. I might expect promotions and prestige, governmental or policy influence. Since Jesus is our king, surely our rights will never come under threat. Surely we could, we could expect a straight-line progression of awesomeness in our lives and in the history of Jesus' church. Well, more on this next week as we look again toward a king who will come again. But as Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. In the context of all that, spiritual forces that would try to discourage us from boldly believing the gospel of grace and boldly proclaiming the gospel of grace. That we are weak, weak, weak people. 2 Corinthians 4, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in us the body of death, the body of the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Jesus has not abandoned us or given us over to fend for ourselves. He has given us victory, but it's not a victory that we might want. He has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, procured and secured by his work on our behalf, now sealed by his Spirit, that if you are in Christ— if you are united to him, if that is a true reality for you right now by faith, then Jesus Christ, whom you are united to, is the only being in the universe who is closer to the right hand of the Father than you. At this moment. So all of you who have had horrible weeks, who have had horrible months, who have had horrible years, be of good courage. Be of good hope. Be of good joy because of Christmas. Because of the incarnation of Jesus. O tidings 
of comfort and joy. Tidings, news, good news, good news, everyone, of comfort and joy. News to be received, to be processed, to be dwelt upon, to be shared. All of this, Jesus' incarnation, his nearness, his humility, the love of God, all of this has been of enormous comfort to me this week. Uh, Like most of us, I think, I've kind of been struggling to want, not even have joy, but to want joy. Struggling to fight for joy, struggling to experience joy lately. A couple of you last Sunday after the service were like, hey man, are you okay? And I'm like, I don't know. I think. God's good. I, I know that. But yeah, it's kind of hard right now. These are almost two years now of COVID and politics and masks and sickness and death. And cumulatively, all of that's just pretty terrible. And all of us, I think, are feeling that. There are so many of us on Zoom tonight because of, to some degree or another, of all of this. But in all of this, Jesus has come into it with tidings of comfort and joy. Not necessarily minute-by-minute happiness, but of anchored, fixed, secure joy. So last week, I could say, I think, yeah, I'm not overwhelmingly happy right now. I want more joy. And there is joy to be fixed to, anchored to, in Christ, who has lived and loved for us, has been put to death and raised to life for you, for me, for all of us. And so the question is, will we trust him? Will we be active preachers to our unbelieving hearts? Or will we be passive listeners? Passive listeners to fear and anxiety and doubt? Or will we speak into those realities that Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has been raised to new life and he has raised me with him. And now, what now? That we might love others sacrificially, that we might proclaim him boldly, all because of his coming and his, once again, coming again. Will we be people of the cross? Will we be Jesus' people? The cross of Christ, which pulls back, exposes reveals his glory. Revealing his nearness and his love and his power. Let me leave us tonight with the concluding reflections from the 1949 sermon on the incarnation from R.G. Lee. He said this, the ancient of days had become the infant of days. What deep descent from the heights of glory to the depths of shame. From the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth from exaltation to humiliation, from the throne to the tree, from dignity to debasement, from worship to wrath, from the halls of heaven to the nails of earth, from the coronation to the curse, from the glory place to the gory place. In Bethlehem, humility and glory in their extremes were joined, born in a stable, cradled in a cattle trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes of poverty, no room for him who made all rooms. No place for him who knows all places. O deep humiliation of the creator, born of the created woman, 
but in his descent was the dawn of mercy. Because we cannot ascend to him, he descended to us. What glory, what love of God that he would live for us, live with us, die for us to bring us to new life in him. Let's pray that he might fix our hope more securely in that reality. God, we, we pray God, that you would give us new hope, new joy today, and tidings of comfort and joy that we might experience rest and comfort and joy, fixed and secure joy in you. That you have been made low, that you have been made like us. God, might this reality in these coming weeks of this busy Christmas season might settle well into our hearts, might fix our anchor even more securely into the triune God who has rescued us, who loves us. God, you sent your Son into the world because you have loved it, because you have loved us, that you might justly pour out wrath on him so that we might be saved, that we might be adopted as your sons and daughters. Might we just swim in this reality even more and more and more and more this week, for the rest of this year, and on into the next. Until you come again, Lord Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.